Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Wow, I'm here. It's the first episode of the first series with my first guest. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Amelia Rope. And for the past 13 years, I have had an incredible experience running my own chocolate business. Now it's time for the world of podcasts. Hope and Patience will be exploring the challenges of running a business, but also taking care of yourself along the way. One thing is that um, my life has been one of quite a few chapters and I wasn't someone who just went out and got one job and, and made a career. And my first guest is a really key example of how life can be made up of many chapters. I would say that he's almost made up a book from his chapters. So I'd like to welcome Rowan Blacker, founder of Pookie Lighting, as my first guest on Hope and Patience. It's a real privilege, Rowan, to have you here. Thank you for having me. I realised, actually, that I've known you for a decade. Yeah, that's pretty much right, since we first bought um, a lorry load of chocolate off you. You did. So, Rowan, just to um, put you lovely listeners in the picture, um, I met Rowan because he and his business partner put in a commission for a 1,000 chocolate bars, and each chocolate bar was to go out with one of their sofas. And from there, I sold into Selfridges, Liberties, and loads of places. So, Rowan is really an instrumental player into my first chapter and why I'm here. Anyway, Ryan's chapters include a matrimonial lawyer, running a pub, running a catering business, running a soup company. He has really done a heck of a lot. He also co-founded not just one highly successful company, but a repertoire of three Deliverance, Sofa.com, and now Pookie Lighting. So, Rowan, your first chapters, a lot of them, would you talk us through them and how you shifted from being a matrimonial lawyer and a solicitor into pubs, restaurants, catering? The reason why I became a lawyer in the first place is because I did a law degree. Um, and, and, and I felt that having sort of been through a life, almost a, well, a whole lifetime of education up to the age of about 22, and I, and, and I took a law degree from Bristol, and I managed to pass it. I then went on to become, to get trained as a, as a barrister. Uh, and then I found myself, instead of being a barrister, I, I, I sort of um, pivoted to become a solicitor. And I thought I should give it a crack, because I'd done all the sort of prep work, so to speak, for it. Um, and I realised actually pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be much of a great lawyer. And, and, and one of my curses, strange enough, not that I'm dyslexic, but I'm an incredibly slow reader. And in the law, you need to be able to pack in a lot of words and you need to be able to... Ret- I retain them. I just don't read them fast. And, and I've, I, I tried to go through various speed reading courses and I, I just couldn't do it. Um, so after a while, I, I just plucked up the courage to go after my boss and said, you know what, I don't think this is for me. And I, I, I was incredibly nervous about doing this and and, and when I did it he, he I remember he, he looked at me because I think that's an unbelievably brave thing to do Rowan and um, I mean perhaps it was I don't know I, I, I guess I could have had a very comfortable career as a nice matrimonial lawyer in the in the shires somewhere but anyway that wasn't to be uh, then I spent a little bit of time sort of, uh, sort of hacking around not knowing what the hell to do I did various little jobs here and there and um, you know, working behind bars, etc. And um, 
Actually, when you look back on your life, there, there are sometimes these very significant moments. At the time, you have no idea they're significant, but they turn out to be the most critical crossroads. And if you hadn't you know, turned left or if you turned right that day or, or, or picked up that newspaper or done whatever it was, then your life arguably would have been entirely different. And strangely enough, for me, that sort of pivotal moment in my life, when I, when I look the whole way back, was when one morning I picked up a newspaper and in the back of the newspaper, there was an advert for this extraordinary, strange, gothic chateau, which was which was um, down in the southwest of France. And I had this loopy idea. And, and, and those were in the days when you could pick up chateau. You still, still can pick up chateau for not very much. But those days, you could really pick them up for tuppence. So I went, you know, so I, I got on the trail. I went to the southwest with a view to think about if I could persuade enough people to put, you know, like a sort of a timeshare of some sort. We could buy this thing. Um, everyone could have a week a year. I could develop it, blah, 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 blah. Of course, that wild scheme never came off. But as a consequence of that, I met various people. Um, and I went, met one particular bloke called Sean, who was um, um, in, also involved in the same sort of business in the southwest of France. It's quite a long story, this, but it's, but, it, but it's relevant to how I got into the catering business. And then Sean one day mentioned that he was he was getting involved in this sort of pub restaurant thing in, in, in Parsons Green. So I just called him up and said, can I help in any way? Um, and so that's how I got into this first sort of proper business that I ever did, which was a sort of, it, I think we kicked it off in about 1993. Um, and it was a pub stroke restaurant. It, well, I, well, you wouldn't necessarily call it a gastro. The, the term gastro pub hadn't been coined at that stage, but we did. We had a restaurant upstairs. We had a trendy bar downstairs, and it kicked off, and it was crazy, crazy, crazy busy for, well, for all, all, all the time I was there. Um, so that's that's how I got into doing my own thing. I was only I was only one part of a you know of a, of a sort of partnership there, but that was my first business. And then from the pen. You then moved into catering and... Yeah, well, basically, at the PEM, we had a great time and it was a lot of fun. It was incredibly badly managed. I, I, I learned a lot about what not to do in business, you know, and and, um, so, and we, had a, we had an interesting fallout, but, but you know, and there's not much point in going into that, but um, I had to move on. And so from that, with the chef who was working there, who, who was a great mate of mine, um, who had become a great mate, we, we then set up a... An event catering business, and from the event catering business, we then we then found ourselves we needed a, we needed a kitchen. So in 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 the back end of Battersea somewhere, we we found another kitchen, and there was a there was an incumbent business there, which which was called the London Soup Company, which is not like the Covent you know the very successful Covent Garden Soup Company. It was just it was, but they made great soups, um, and we wholesaled them to when I say we because we took over the London Soup Company. So then for a while there was. There was the event catering. So for that, we were doing the weddings. We were doing the, oh, I don't know, sort of loads of office parties we did. And we, we, we hired these quite large, amazing old sort of warehouse venues on the river in London. And we just had a brilliant, brilliant time doing that. So from the London Soup Company and the catering company, yeah. did you then sell them or did you just no, close, shut no, up shop? No, or? the soup company I sort of gave to a friend of mine um, who, who thought it looked good and who thought it might tie quite nicely with the business he had. So... I sort of gave that away, frankly. Um, the catering company just sort of wound down gently because it because it was time and it was exhausting and it was and it wasn't it wasn't you know it was making a little bit of money but it was not really a good a good business to live off. 
And what if if there was one sort of major challenge that you um, came across during that time? What what do you think that challenge was, and how did you learn from it? Um, well, actually, strangely enough, from from the 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 restaurant time, the the challenge was learning to work with other people and learning to work within the team. And I definitely, we, you know, I I just sort of put up my hand and volunteered to become a partner, a one of four partners. And I learned a lot about probably the type of people you wouldn't want to go into business with in the future. I made a, you know, we were incredibly lucky because the business was just, you know, the place was popular. You know, loads, of, you know, we were absolutely rammed. The restaurant was full all the time. So it was a lot of fun. But as a business, it was it was spectacularly badly run. So we didn't lose money. We didn't really make any money. And, and, and so it sort of you know, inform me that, you know, you've got to keep all the nuts and bolts right. You know, it helps to have a great business partner, one someone who you you know, if you you know, who you can see eye to eye with. And you need to keep all those important things about a business sort of sort of operating, you know, the numbers, the you know, all the sort of housekeeping has got to be in order because as soon as you let it sort of fall apart the business actually just begins to fall apart and you, and, and, you, and, you, and you have no handle on it. Okay, so then you moved out of that sort of chapter of your uh-huh. life and you moved into deliverance as far as I'm... Sure, and, yeah. And so it would be great to hear how you met Pat Reeves, yep. who um, was how I met you, and your business partner for, for a long time. 20 and years. 20 years, and how you sort of propelled yourself along on that incredible pathway. Pat came to me, you know, sort of mistakenly thinking I was some sort of business guru who had made a, a good cut of it in the catering industry. And he wanted to set up a sandwich bar. You know, it was the early-ish days of Pret. Um, Starbucks hadn't come to London, for example. We worked incredibly hard to try and do this, actually. We had all the plans and all the ideas, and we couldn't get a site you know, for love or money. So we didn't. We were newbies to the game. We didn't have any covenant. We didn't really have a huge amount of money to put down as a as a um, as a rent deposit. And landlords just didn't want to know about us. You know, and anything that was good was taken up by Pret or the new boys coming into town. Um, and after all, we just gave it up. And, I, and, and so I turned around to Pat one day and I said, look, I've got another idea, which, which I think we should attempt to revolutionise home delivery. You know, because I think home delivery in the main is absolutely terrible. It's, it's the sort of food of last resort. You get back home after a hard day's work, you find all these sort of crappy menus lying on the doorstep. Um, and not that you want to, but you haven't got anything else to do. What you had delivered to your door back then was, yes, it was quite cheap, but it was pretty disgusting food. So we said, look, it can't, why can't anyone just deliver basically quite good food? Of course you can deliver good food. So we, so we set up the business. We called it Deliverance, which was a good name. Um, and in fact, it was a brilliant name to have. Who decided the, the name? Was that you and Well, Pat, actually, or? it was a mate of, mate of ours um, who one day said, well, you've got to call it Deliverance. It's perfectly obvious. Lucky you didn't come yeah. after that and say, hey, <laughs> I was the one behind the name of the yeah. brand. Well, and also, so we call it Deliverance. And then our strap line was Culinary Salvation, which was which upset a few of the more religious people. But it was it was a really nice little strap line. So it was Deliverance, cooked fresh, delivered fast, culinary salvation. And we found ourselves a kitchen, you know, it was a thousand square foot by the heliport in Battersea. It was a really grungy little kitchen. But again, it was in the days when you could do things like that. Everything came from the secondhand store. We painted the kitchen with this, what we thought was really good floor paint, which all came up in the first week on the bottom of everyone's shoes. So it was seriously done on a shoestring. 
Um, but, but had either of you... I mean, you'd got the catering experience, so you knew what equipment to get in. Um, but... Yeah, I, well, to, yeah, to some degree, yeah. Well, I mean, look, as I said, we replaced everything, you know, relatively quickly because, you know, the, the, all, all our second-hand fridges were, you know, were collapsing around us. And we and we didn't... We had no idea. So it was interesting. So we had no idea. I had no idea about Chinese food and how to get a Chinese chef. We had no idea where to find a good Indian chef. So we ended up actually calling up... The, the head chef at a, a then very famous Indian restaurant called Chutney Mary, but based down in, oh, in yeah. Chelsea. So I just called. I said, "Look, can I speak to the um, the head chef, please?" A guy called Mr. Batty, and Mr. Batty, uh, I said, "Look, I need to meet you. I, I want to find a chef, and I will. I'll, I'll pay you five hundred quid as a sort of introduction if you can get me a couple of Indian chefs." So he did. He found us a couple of you know, the, and the most lovely men you'll ever meet in your life, Wasam and Shanu. Um, so they became our Indian chefs, and then we needed to find. Then we needed to find a Chinese chef. And again, so Pat and myself went to Chinatown in order to... And we, we had lunch in this Chinese restaurant. And, and I said, all right, Pat, go and talk to them. Ask if you can talk to the chefs. He said, I'm not doing that. You, you bloody do that. <laughs> and I said, I'm not doing it. And we, we had this... We suddenly got the fear. And we didn't know what to do. So we ran out of the... Well, we paid. and we, we got out of the restaurant. And then Pat later on decided that he would just call Ken Lowe's widow, wife. So Ken Lowe had died... And he called, I think she was called Anne Lowe. He said, look, I'm looking for, a can you recommend anyone? Because I don't know anything about anything. And Anne Lowe said, well, I've got this fantastic guy called Tim Tang, who's just, he's one of the, he's a brilliant chef and he's one of these amazing vegetable carvers. You know, he could turn a carrot into a sort of Aston Martin or something. And I um, would have liked that. <laughs> flash, flash cars <laughs> became his weak yeah, spot, didn't it? Yeah, it, it? did. Um, and and so gradually, you know, a bit like the Blues Brothers, we put the team together, and then we got a, a Thai chef from somewhere, and then we got a actually my friend Oggy and, and his wife became, you know, they were from Bosnia, and they became the pizza chefs. So I said, just just find out how to make bloody pizzas and come back to me in a week. How did you plan? <laughs> I I'm sort of thinking with my chocolate head on here now, but yeah. I'm thinking you've got a hell of a lot of fresh ingredients potentially hanging around. Yeah. If you didn't get many punters ordering their I don't know, margarita pizza. Actually, yeah. margarita's a cocktail, <clears throat> or is it pizza? It's, it's both. Both, there you go. But if they, I think they might be differently spelled. Oh, perhaps they yeah. are. But anyway, the point is that what would you do with the weight? I mean, was there a huge waste of the food? And, and manpower, did you just have all these chefs hanging around hoping to get orders in? Well, the amazing lucky thing is that we were we were just busy. Put out 5,000 menus day one. We, we wandered around Battersea just lobbing them through um, doors. doors. Thank you, that's the word. Um <laughs> And, you know, we all sat around in the evening just looking at the phone, thinking, do you think it'll ever bloody ring? And then it rung. I think actually the first phone call I think we got was from my mother going, oh, darling, <laughs> has anyone has anyone ordered yet? Mum, get off the frigging phone. <laughs> anyway, but then the phone did ring. Yeah. And then and, and then it rang again and again and again. And, and we were, of course, in the very early days there was food waste. But actually, strange enough, it just, you know, whilst we had a lot of things on the menu, yeah. food waste was not an issue for us at all. And we were just, you know, we were constantly trying to fight to keep up with the demand. Um, and in a way, we could control the demand because if we wanted more business, mm -hmm. we'd just go and drop a few more um, menus. I mean, our, our marketing was incredibly... We didn't do any advertising. We did, the only advertising we did 
we designed a beautiful menu and we dropped it on people's, you know, through people's door. Uh, I remember boxes. having them dro- drop through yeah. my door. So with Deliverance, you and Pat then decided to sell the business, and which was a fantastic move, I would imagine. For well, it was yourself. the right thing to do because the business was getting really complicated. It was it was big. It was becoming unmanageable. It was it was not necessarily manageable by us anymore. You know, we were a couple of sort of sad old amateurs. So yeah, someone came along and said they'd like to buy it. We thought that was a great opportunity. So and we've been doing it for seven years. Bang on. So we sold it seven years to the day that we started it up. So on that note, we, Rowan and I, are going to sneak in a little chocolate moment. And Rowan's pick of chocolate is Terry's Chocolate Orange. Now, what I didn't realise is that before the Terry's Chocolate Orange, which was launched in the early 30s, there was a chocolate apple. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. I, 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 I mean, I presume they don't exist anymore. But well, I don't think. I think the orange sort well, of the took or, over. The orange works so well because it's segmented. You know, how, I don't know how you would eat a, a cherries, some cherries, Terry's chocolate cherries. apple. And I'm sorry, listeners, you're going to hear the rustle of the packs, and you're going to hear us enjoying a little chocolate moment. Oh, oh my God! Oh, that really did explode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, they're all over the floor. Anyway. But I'm going to have one, nevertheless. Suck in. A nice little segment. And Mm. we won't get too sidetracked, because obviously we've got a show. This is my first show, Rowan. Come on, we've got to get get on it. So, Rowan, I'm on to Sofa.com. Sure. And um, that was your second venture with Pat. Mm -hmm. What was one of the major challenges that you faced with Sofa.com? Okay, what we didn't want to do is we didn't want to set up a a sort of a backstreet sofa store with with you know Pat and Rowan's sofa emporium. So if we were going to do it, we wanted to have, you know, to use a poker term, the nuts name, the best name you could possibly lay your hands on. And we discovered that the URL sofa.com was actually um, potentially available. It was it was it was being sat on by a you know a leather sofa company in Milwaukee in Wisconsin. So we we called up and um, a guy picked up the phone and and, and we said, look, uh, we understand that you you've got the URL sofa.com. Are you are you interested in selling it? And he goes, yeah. Well, you know, I guess everything's got a price. And so, well, okay, fantastic. What what would you imagine that price might be, sir? And eventually he comes back and he goes, well, I think you know I I wouldn't sell it for less than a million bucks. It's like a million bucks for four letters. That's one hundred twenty five thousand quid per letter. Anyway, then followed about six months of negotiation, and we did eventually buy it for $200,000. At the time, we didn't realise that the guy we were buying it off actually just turned out to be any old Joe Schmo who was working in this company. He's the guy who picked up the bit. He wasn't the owner of the company. And the bank details on the contract that we signed with with this grand firm of lawyers in New York happened to be his private bank details. They were not the details of the company. So he then absconded with all the money with his girlfriend down to South America. He was eventually apprehended and arrested. It was, it was an extraordinary thing. But, but the truth is, we bought it in good faith, you know, with a legal and fair contract. So, you know, this all came to light, the, the crime of it, about six months after we kicked off the business. And one of the stories that you um, told me about, which um, sort of tickled my humour, which was a major challenge, was you and Pat being over six foot, designing <laughs> sofas for your height, your length of leg, and then realising that the average punter, like myself, is five, six and a half. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, this is just total naivety. So, you know, we, we, we designed these sofas. You know, why, why would we design sofas? We had no idea about it. Anyway, so we designed 
really big sofas for really big men. And we thought that was right. And then, of course, we got a lot of people calling up and going, yes, we'd like to return the sofa. It seems to be rather large. It's rather uncomfortable. So, you know, we had to rein that in. We had to change it, you know. And these are all obvious things. I mean, and, well, at least they should be obvious. This chocolate's very good, by the way. Good. Um, I know I haven't had my piece. But you did, I mean, both you did phenomenally well with the business. Um, and you then um, you sold. We did, in the end. Well, well, what happened is poor old Pat got ill. He was diagnosed with um, cancer. And um, he just went off for a good old-fashioned um, colonoscopy, which is, you know... Um, and, and I called him up in the evening and said, how's that, mate? Because he wouldn't believe it. I've got stage four cancer, which, you know, and I go, what does stage four mean? He goes, well, put it like this. There isn't... They don't do stage five. Um, and suddenly obviously his whole world imploded and 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 four years of really tough treatment ensued so i was sort of left running the business he was sometimes involved sometimes not involved the business for him was and it was a really wonderful therapy for him because you know it gave him a bit of sort of normality but at the same time he was he was in and out of chemo and he had you know drugs coursing through his body which you know, sometimes put him in the most brilliant mood. Sometimes put him in the in the darkest, blackest mood. So it was a, it was a difficult time, and we agreed after a while that, you know, we should we should probably try and sell the business. And it felt about the right time. Again, it, in the same way as Deliverance, it was you know the business had grown quite a lot. It was getting quite complicated, and in a way, it was the right time for someone else to take it on. You know, we'd sort of roughly achieved what we'd said well not that we started you know not we ever knew exactly what we were set out to achieve but we had created a a new way of selling sofas you know in the uk it was very very much a loved business by by yeah our clientele. It, was, it was phenomenal so that that was obviously a major um challenge with pat and so you then have moved into lighting, into Pookie lighting. Yep. How did you end up in lighting? And, you know, have you got a big team that you're running and cash flow for? Um, I'm just imagining a hell of a lot of stock that you've got, uh, warehousing. Yeah. Well, and- there is a lot of stock. And, and in a way, that was the big risk for this business. Um, why did I set it up? I, I set it up for the really hopeless and ridiculous and sort of nondescript, non-business uh, way. I just, I, I like lights a lot. Uh, I think they're important. I think I think they entirely change the mood, the vibe, the, the, the atmosphere in any given space. Um, I, I didn't do it because I saw a particular gap in the market. I mean, actually, I think there was a gap in the market. I think sort of mid-market, there, just, there were very few decent lighting retailers. And... and um, but I did it because lighting is fun and lighting is beautiful and lighting is interesting and and I just felt it was it, it would be it would be a, an enjoyable business to go into and of course. But you're doing this you're doing this on your own. I mean, this is a business I, without a business partner. Well, so is that? I've got I've got a, a brilliant um, sort of CEO who's 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 a who's a partner in the business and, and he's not a partner in the same way as Pat was because Pat and myself always did everything religiously 50-50. We did lots of businesses that we haven't mentioned here, um, which and we always did 50-50, irrespective of how much money we were able individually to put into the business. It was, it was you know, that was the deal. We worked as a team. So this is my business, yeah, and, and, it, is, and it is different. It's the first business that I've ever, well, since Pat died, um, you know, and I did seven, eight, nine businesses with Pat that, that, that I've done on my own. So 
there was a sort of added pressure, sort of, sort of psychologically. I mean, I I really wanted it. I I know this sounds pathetic, but I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want it to look as though I'd just been carried by Pat all those years. I mean, Pat was totally brilliant. He was a wonderful partner to have. But I, I, for myself, I wanted to prove that I could do it by myself. And it's been quite a struggle, actually. But it is, it's, it's, now, it's now gaining traction. It's becoming, actually, it's becoming every, every bit of the business that I wanted it to. But it's taken a lot longer. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, the times have changed, so now things move so quickly. Is it more Is it has it been more difficult setting the business up in in this day and age where everybody's online and everybody's doing everything? So, so look, when we set up Sofa.com, there were obviously quite a few players online, but it was very different to what it is now. So we set up Sofa.com in two hundred five. And which was it was almost like a desert compared to what it. So when we set up Pookie, which was 2014, the web, the web high street was just the busiest, noisiest, most congested place you've ever been. And everyone, it was it was like some sort of strange sort of marketplace with everyone shouting, screaming, trying to like in vegetable markets where everyone's trying to sell the same, some you know, basically the same apples. So to get heard on the web these days is really tough. You know, loads of people selling lights and, and, and light bulbs and green lights and red and, and all sort in every, you know, the thing that web gives you is it, it enables companies to specialise down to the tiniest detail. So anything you want from wherever, you can find it on the web. When you kick off these businesses today, you've somehow got to do something that people are going to notice. So with Pookie Lighting, do you feel that it's a business that could take you to the next chapter? Do you feel it's going to be your last chapter? Oh, God, it's not going to be my last chapter. No way at all. I've no idea where I'm going to be next week or, or, no. or next year. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really enjoying this business at the moment. You know, when a business gets to a certain level for me and it becomes complicated and, 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 and process-driven and you have to have you know, an HR department, you know, it, it becomes beyond my control and the, and, and and there's very often a time when it's it, it is it is right that someone else should be looking after that business yeah. it's not because i want to cash in huge sums of money it's because this you know in the business is developing but it's the right thing to do at the right yeah. at, at that time so now Rowan, i want to take um my listeners and myself on a little exploration uh-huh. of um really sort of an entrepreneur's mindset and um, how you make decisions and how you cope with balancing your life and um, looking after yourself when it's mm-hmm. when it's really full on. But one thing that I'm always fascinated in is whether it's in your DNA to have your own business, to have your own gig. Were your parents self-starters? Were your grandparents? It's a bit in the family. I mean, to be honest, not so much. My father was a farmer, so, you know, he, he went out every day and looked after sheep and c- cattle, so... In terms of food, there's quite a lot of catering in my in my family. My brother's a chef. My uncle was ran a quite a successful restaurant in London. So so yeah, it was around me, but I wouldn't say it was it was hardwired into my DNA at all, no. The word entrepreneur is banded around a lot. What in your mind for me, I see you as an entrepreneur, what in your mind defines an entrepreneur? You evidently need to, to have a, a, a degree of self belief. You need to bring in quite a lot of different sort of uh, pieces to the puzzle. One of which actually is is leadership, I think, and I think that's an important part of it because you can't do any of these amazing sort of exciting things without persuading your fellow compadres to to come on this journey with you um, and to, to to try and carry out what you, you know your, your dream. 
Um, and you can't do everything. You know, and you, like you talk to people all the time. He goes, oh, my God, I'm so busy. I don't have a single moment in every day. And the answer is, well, you shouldn't be. You need other people to help you because you'll burn yourself out. Yeah. You'll get, and, and people get so holed up in their businesses. So you need to be able to pass on the message and, and, and lead the gang in your direction. So I think, I think leadership is a very important one. Obviously, yeah. you need a good idea. You need the passion. You need mm-hmm. all that. You know, it's a it's a much banded around word. It's 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 a frustrating word a bit. And the other banded around word um, that always fascinates me is success. Because yeah. I know that when I had my business, my frustration was that my turnover was never it never really reflected the success of the people that I was supplying, and and where my brand was sort of positioned. How do you? So I saw it as a financial thing then. Now I don't. When I look back, how do you? perceive success well I'll, I'll come over all hippie here obviously um success is not a financial thing success is 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 the value that you create or how much it should be measured entirely on different things and i can't bear it when someone goes oh god so and so is so successful um meaning they've just got you know a, a, an overflowing wallet because that's that's just silly and wrong so moving from um dabbling a bit into you um and and sort of your thoughts on entrepreneurs and success um one of the things that i think is really important uh when you run your business and something that i took my foot off the gas with at times is well-being which again is an overused word but so vital so i just want to touch on a few things to ask you about how you handle things like stress and and exercise Uh so that Perhaps it will help our listeners. Um, so you've got a family. You've got, I can't remember how many, you've got three girls. Three, th- three girls. Three yeah. girls. So you have been a busy man with your wife, bringing up the, the children <laughs> and running these businesses yeah. and spinning 100 plates. So how did you take care of yourself at that time, sort of mentally, physically? In the past, I didn't take care of myself at all, Um, and I I undoubtedly smoked too much. I definitely drank too much, and I live life far too fast and too hard. I didn't, fortunately, I didn't burn out, but I look after myself a lot more these days. Actually, one thing I do, I walk quite a lot and I cycle quite a lot. And actually, you know, we're lucky enough to have a pool at home, which is which in the winter is pretty damn cold. But I swim in that as much as I can. I think that is a, I think the sort of cold water swimming thing is brilliant. Uh, and however much you don't want to do it, it makes you feel great. But but equally, um, walking. I, I I we've got a couple of crazy spaniels. I walk them every day, and it's a great time to just wind down, think. You know, whether I walk with someone or on my on myself. The the you know we, we read all the time about the powers of walking, the restorative powers for the brain, and so you know walking is as much about the brain as it is for the old legs. So do you do you eat well? Do you have a balanced diet? Um, I have to tell you, listeners, that he is readily tucking into his Terry's (laughs) chocolate orange. I think I a lot better now than I used to. Where I've got to stop myself is I've got to stop having seconds. (laughs) I know that sounds really basic. But I I do take quite a lot of exercise. I'm I'm big, but I'm not ridiculous But you've got that extra foot. Mm. I always dreamed of being a bit (laughs) taller to stretch myself Mm. out. So on the dreaded word stress, how do you find that you sort of combat it one way to combat stress to be honest is not to drink too many pints of beer or too many bottles mm-hmm. of wine if you if you are not drinking alcohol i'm sounding like a sort of evangelist here 
you can cope with so much more in life. And it is quite outstanding. And sleep. I mean, sleep is just... Even if yep. you don't sleep the whole time, the quality of sleep is phenomenal. It's really good. It's good. You wake up alive. And you, di- and you discover a whole new you that you just had completely forgotten... You know, and you haven't you haven't met this you since you were fourteen years old. It's good. But it's quite good inside. It's very liberating. <laughs> and if, if you have a favourite book or a favourite song that you'd like to recommend, am I allowed to recommend Charlie Maxey's book or not? No. Well, you can do. I'm about to recommend it too. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it in my bag. It's my new Bible. Well, I'm. I, I, I'm. I, you know. I, I would recommend Charlie Maxey's new book. I mean, he only bought it out. I mean, it, it, it's caused the most enormous stir very, very quickly. It's beautifully presented. It's beautifully drawn. It's, and the way I look at it, it's like it's like, it's almost like a bible for modern living without all the sort of encumbrances and, and and religion getting in the way. It's it's and if you can follow, what it suggests in that book and and which is which phrase so sharply and succinctly, then then that that's I mean that it's not a novel. I read I read a lot of um I read a lot of nonfiction. I read and, and, and I love all that and but I, but as I mentioned right at the start of this, I'm a super slow reader. So I can spend at least a couple of months reading one book, which I love. That's really good. Actually two things before um we wrap up is that obviously the podcast is called Hope and Patience <coughs> after my two grannies. Yep. But I would love you to share a time, if you can remember a time, when you had to have bucket loads of hope. I, I've, got, I've sort of got hope for things in the future now. I hope that people like that Boyan Slat, do you know who are you familiar with Boyan Slat? This this fabulously handsome sort of twenty five year old Dutch engineer who's trying to clean up the oceans of plastic, and he's got this extraordinary dream. He's sort of Elon Musk for the next generation, but with with a um, environmental hat on him. So I hope, I hope, I hope for the for the globe, but particularly the oceans. Actually, that's what yeah. I hope for. I hope, I hope for my children. I hope that I have matters of hope. I hope that they end up sort of balanced and un, uncontorted and disturbed like myself. And when you, um, my other grandmother was called Patience. In fact, it's my middle name and I have little of it. But what springs to mind when you think of your business and the need for patience? I, well, I think, I, look, I, I think patience is inc- super, super, super important. And I think a lot of people are very impatient these days and they want success overnight and they set up a website and they think they should have, you know, or, or, or a blog or whatever it may be and they should have a million followers, you know, within the week. And, and of course, there are lots of examples of that happening. So so why shouldn't it happen to them? But but again, I think patience, you know, as as a virtue is is a great one. And, and any any success achieved is all the sweeter for the length and the and, and of the journey that you took to get there. Um, and 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 probably the success is greater as a consequence of that as well. And and if you don't experience all these little sort of minutiae, the little hillocks, the little problems, the little turns, the twists, the potholes along the way, it's not as much fun. You know, you 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 have a better life if 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 you deal with all the issues along the way. And and my message to people would be: have patience. Don't don't expect things to come instantaneously. That's that that that's a, a modern disease which we need to get to lose a bit. Brilliant. Thank you, Rowan, so much for being my first guest on my first <laughs> episode of my first series well, it's been a good of chat. Hope and Patience podcast. It's, it's been absolutely brilliant. I'm so going to have a nice of, another slice of chocolate. Yeah, you in, ha- I had some of that exploding candy and it was popping on it's my... It's been fun. My Thanks, Amelia. Thanks very much. Thank you.
I would love to um, suggest to my listeners a book and also give you a little quote. So the book recommendation is exactly the same book as Roan suggested, uh, which is just a little Bible and it's fantastic for all age groups. And it's something that if you're feeling a little bit tucked up, if you flick open a page, it just it offers magic. So it's by Charlie Maxey and it's called The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse. And my quote for this show is from the book. So what I'd like you to do is imagine a little boy and a mole sitting by his side on a rock looking out onto a vast landscape. And the boy says, what is that over there? It's the wild, said the mole. Don't fear it. And finally... I was thinking this week about transition and about when you need to move on from something, whether it's your company has gone into liquidation or whether you've got to close your company or whether it's just that what you're doing is not right for you. And it's it's something that, that fascinates me in the way that I've just made a transition from my chocolate business, which I decided... I had evolved from and my purpose had changed into this exciting world of podcasts. And with transition, the transition phase, I found it to be um, a process of grieving of what had been and what was going to go. And it took huge courage and it took a lot of trust that I was actually doing the right thing. And what I found was that I had a very sort of close counsel who I shared my heart with and they listened and they um, offered support as and when I needed it. And when you're getting to that stage where you're about to make that transition, you do think, oh, my goodness, perhaps there's going to be a tipping point. Perhaps I've got this so wrong. Am I really going to regret what I'm doing? I don't know if any of you have been through something similar or whether you agree with with how I've found it or or just your thoughts on it. And I'd really love to hear. So if you want to share any thoughts, pop it on the social media at Hope and Pat or ping me an email on the website on the um, Contact Me page because it's, it's, it's something that I think we should chat about and I think it would bolster people who have got to make that transition. Don't forget to check out the goodie bag on our website where you'll find my recommendations and hopefully some of yours as we get moving along the podcast for a good read and a dollop of wellbeing tips. Thank you again so much to Rowan for joining me and to you, the listener, for finding us. I'll be back with another story soon, so make sure you subscribe to get the latest episode. And if you like what you hear, feel free to give us a positive rating and spread the word. I would also love to know what you'd like to hear more of, less of, and importantly to none of. Probably just let me know via the website. So until next time, keep that sparkle. Bye. Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk or find Amelia on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Hope and Pat.